Um, under your chairs, I mean under the end chairs, are your handouts. Have you got to fiddle with me? Oh, somebody's got to fiddle with me. What is it about? I'm not. Oh, yeah, look. We did it, didn't we? we Try that. What do you think? Yes, yes. We have lift off. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> um, underneath the chair, if you're on the end, you will have a copy. And in theory, if not in practice, they'll meet in the middle. Is everybody happy? You bet your life we are right. Okay. Precarious and anxious. I have to make a confession. I love that word precarious because it is a long time since I left my native bootle. But there are certain words which mean that I've said one, precarious, and I got a bleep. Um, so every time I say precarious, I feel quite at home. First slide, please. Can't get the staff, you know. <laughs> there we are, there we are. Um, this is kind of state of the art here. Um, I shall describe it to you. It's from a chap called Guy Standing, um, who I think is a professor of social science -y type things at the University of Bath. That's another one, Bath. <laughs> Bath. Well, this chap from Bath, he says, you know, we talk, you know, well, particularly in England, we're very clear about a class system, you know, the upper class, middle class, working class. Well, he says, forget about that. He says, both in our own nation and across the world, that really the bulk of people would be called precarious and he reuses the word precariat, um, which is just posh for precarious. And it's probably because it rhymes with salariat, which personally, to me, sounds like something you buy in the Polish deli, a bit of salariat. Um, but really what they're saying is that those of us who might have thought that we were secure because we had a salary, that sense of precariousness is kind of moving through. And he uses this description of the elite, which I suspect are those who are being fingered in, are they called the Paradise Papers? Um, that have just been, you know, people who can kind of take their money out of the everyday ins and outs, whether it be tax or whether it be expenditure, that the rest of us are involved in. So this is your starter for 10. Um, what do you think about that idea of precariousness rising through populations, people feeling more precarious? And then to take it locally, to not to um, 
other places beginning with W, but Whitstable, taking it to Whitstable. Um, where do you see precariousness? Um, either neighborhoods, um, or whether it might be that you kind of see it in a particular industry. Um, so where, where is precariousness? Because we'll talk about the implications of people being precarious in the rest of the session. So in your nice groups of convenience, um, what do you think to this idea? Precariousness is increasing, um, not just in this country, but globally. Um, and take it back to Whitstable. Where's precariousness in Whitstable? Off you go, just for 10 minutes. Right, what have we got to say about precariousness? Any thoughts on precariousness? Waiting on a new vicar. You know, oh, gosh, Because, yeah. obviously, you know, we yeah. ho hope and pray that God... Gosh, God will send the right person, but yeah. and once yeah. he arrives, then yeah. there's that about yeah. you know allowing him or her yeah. to settle and not have sort of like well we didn't do it that way we should do it that yeah. way and so yeah so there's yeah. a lot of precariousness right. around waiting on a yes. on a new person to lead us which is the clue that precariousness kind of intrudes on us even though we might think things are going along smoothly suddenly there's just a little bit of shaky flaky feeling yeah thank you. Very apt. Other comments about precariousness? We came up with finances and health. That yes. We yeah. thought they were two areas that were so catastrophic if things went wrong. Yes. They had such yeah. far-reaching implications. Yeah. And group experiences of being healthy one moment, not and the next, not, yeah. and the implications yeah. of that for yeah. independence or employment. Yeah. And then finances, and we were saying about that affecting across the generations, okay. from pensioners feeling unable to afford things to young people who are trying to seek employment. Yeah. So yeah. we thought that was and of course, stuff. what you've raised is how Mr. Standing from Bath um, <laughs> only focuses on money, and whilst that is important. Um, one of the things, I thought I was going to say it in my sermon, can I tell you a secret? I could talk in the Albert Hall, but if anybody asked me to do a sermon in a tin tabernacle, my hand would shake. So the only thing I'm worried about today is that somebody said, would I do the sermon? So we'll pretend it's a talk, <laughs> and you'll all pray for me. Um, but why am I telling you that? Uh, what was I saying? Precarious. Um, what happens in our world is that everybody thinks it's money. And that's, that's the only economy. And I thought the sermon, what I wrote, was <laughs> going to be about abundance. And I've read it, and it isn't. I, I did it a long time. Well, I did it a fortnight ago, didn't I? Yeah. It's not as if it's like an old, dreary one. Well, it is, but... It, anyway... I wanted to tell you about abundance because I wanted to say, and I might, and I can't, I'm just coming to go off, off piste, that there is an economy which is as robust and as reliable 
as the economy of scarcity that the economists focus on. And that one of the ways in which we step into that abundance is by doing things a bit like Jesus. It is a mysterious offer to our neighborhood, to our families, dare we say to our nation, that when we do things a bit like Jesus, that kingdom reversal, that unexpected way in which Jesus behaved, that we suddenly trigger a great cascade of grace. So in starting you off on this, I'm kind of taking you down the world's way of saying being precarious is to do with stuff and your access to it. Have you got a way into stuff or you haven't? But right from the very beginning, you guys have said, you know what? That's part of the story, but it's not all of the story. Any other comments about precariousness to get me back on track? Thank you. Kath and I felt very precarious about coming on this weekend because it's the first time we've been in this situation. Yeah. But all I can say is that we shouldn't have been worried because yeah. everyone has been so kind to us. Yeah. Yeah. You've only got to sit at a table and someone says, can I get you something to eat? You've only got to be sitting here and someone say, can I, can I push you somewhere? Yeah. And it's just open, well, it hasn't opened their eyes because we know what such a lovely yeah. church we all are. Yeah. It's been great for us. Yeah. Thank you. That's right. It kind of moistens the heart, doesn't it? it moistens the heart to be a recipient of other people's kindness. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's where I wasn't thought we were going, but never mind. Right, we'll... oh, okay. um, <laughs> These curates. In our group, we were talking about um, Donald Trump and North Korea and how um, we see all the, the, the tit and tat over the uh, media um, and wondering whether it's actually happening over the media or whether it's happening in the background. So you don't know. No. Very precarious. No, no. Yes, so precarious that, you know, what is truth? Although that belongs to Trump, it's alerted us all to that problem. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we were barking up the wrong tree, but um, this is where we got to with our little group. Um, we were talking about being precarious is about just being aware that you're relying on something coming in to sustain you, like whether it be your wage or something like that. So then when we were saying to get up to the next bit, the salariat bit, then actually you still need to kind of be precarious because if, you, if you're not careful with what's coming in, then you could end up going back down to being the precariat. But then we, kept, then we went on to say, well, actually, even at elite level, you still, we're precarious in every aspect of whatever level we're at because all the time you're relying on someone else to provide your utilities, your food, all the material things you need to sustain yourself, then you are relying on somebody else. You are not beyond need of somebody else. And then I, well, we kind of said, well, if you're self-sufficient or a hermit somewhere, then maybe you don't need to rely on anyone else because you're totally self-sufficient. But then actually... Even then, if you are self-sufficient, you're relying on the climate and the weather from God to make sure your crops yeah. do yeah. well. So actually, ultimately, until you kind of get to the kingdom of heaven, then you are a precarious. That's, that's very, yes. As you were speaking, I thought, hmm, there's a point. That the intricacy of our relationships 
mean that we are all precarious if those relationships fall apart. Um, and of course, because we are so reliant on electricity, um, so reliant on water being clean, we really don't have the resourcefulness that might have been available just three or four generations ago when people had ways and means of living in a modest way rather than our very tightly bonded way. I keep thinking people are smiling at me, but they're not. They're smiling at this little one. <laughs> Can I have the next slide, please? Um, now, at this point, I always make a determination to say, is there anybody here who does brain imaging or brain surgery? Because I tell you, I have put this up, and the answer has been yes. <laughs> And you know what? It stands scrutiny. It withstands scrutiny. Now, I'm going to talk about anxiety, not in its acute form, in its challenging, very problematic form that many of us or some of us will be familiar with. But I'm talking about that kind of background noise type anxiety. Um, when we are anxious, and it is what happens to all of us, is that certain parts of our brain go into overdrive. And they talk about not just the triune God, they talk about the triune brain. Um, and I want to be concerned with this reptilian brain. Now, I have not made that up. This is what it is referred to as. I want, I want somebody to do brain imaging to say, yes, Anne, it is called the reptile brain. Yeah, Thank you. Oh. You see, because, you know, you think I'll just tell you a load of old guff. So the reptilian brain, surrounded by the limbic system. Now, the limbic system is associated with the emotion. And then around that is the neocortex. And that's the thinking brain. Now, in order to function every day in a pretty full-on way, we need to be able to move, particularly between the limbic system and the neocortex. So as we're actually thinking about the emotions that we're experiencing, that it's not just raw emotions. But if we are anxious, the chances are that we have got a rather busy reptile brain. And it is called the reptile brain because when that bit it's the, it runs down the back of the neck into the brain stem, when we have our reptile brain in overdrive, we behave like a reptile. That means that we have a speed of response and we're cold-blooded. Um, we understand that reptiles have no feeling of pain. When we are anxious, the chances are we don't feel the pain that we are actually experiencing and the pain that we might be bringing about in others. And of course, it is what's called the reactive brain. So the kid who is stabbed at the bus stop coming home from school, the chances are 
he, it, like chances are, it will be a lad. That lad will have been stabbed by another lad whose reptile brain is fizzing. And much of youth work is involved in trying to help youngsters step out of the reptile brain, out of just sheer emotionalism, and bring in that thinking capacity. Hence the triune brain, three steps. If people are precarious, the chances are people are in that reptile brain more than if everything's going along smoothly. Yep, that's my thesis. That you are ministering into a context of anxiety. And you very boldly mentioned your own anxiety, but the anxiety that's in Whitstable, the anxiety that's in the nation, the anxiety that's in the West, we could go on, the anxiety that's in the globe, in the universe, and so on. So I want to just give some thoughts about what we do in relation to anxiety, because it is a real dastardly dynamic. Um, I think it's when we're anxious that we're most likely to sin. Next one, please. So when we are anxious, we react, um, and rather than respond, we become more instinctual, in other words, more animal-like. So when Gran used to say, count to ten, that really was about saying, calm. Just calm that reptile brain, take ten, and you'll be in a different place with a different response. So that difference between reaction and response, just the way the words are sound, give that kind of urgency, that intensity with reaction, responding. Um, behavior becomes extreme and unyielding. And of course, we see this in response to um, Islam, um, both experienced by Muslims and also our own response because of, of fear. <laughs> How can you respond rather than react? One of the kind of the pressing issues. And I, it's quite helpful for those of us of a certain age. We've been here before in relation to um, Ireland. Um, but somehow it didn't feel quite as intense. Um, in, in terms of its impact upon us. And then what happens is that we make vulnerable those who are not like ourselves. We tend to pick on those who are different, and we do that B word, blaming. We point the finger. It's called scapegoating. And I'll finish up on a little thoughts about scapegoating. Um, because that is surely one of the most amazing contributions that Jesus makes in the way in which he performed. And then what happens is that we have emotional distancing. Those who are making us feel anxious, we're unlikely to invite them to our birthday party. We just kind of take a step away, which means that we never get to know any more about them or the situation that's making them tick. 
Um, and the distance is something that then can gain momentum. Um, and before you know it, you've got that them and us. Um, and remember, right at the very outset, we were able to say that Jesus really did unravel any inclination to do a them and us. Um, we're likely to herd, which means taking on the hurts of others. Um, that's one of the ones that can trip up churches. Because what happens is that we look for others who, and get them to think like us. Because that gives us comfort and reassurance. Oh, so-and-so thinks like this. Um, and then you get momentum around the grievance. That looking for solid, a sort of cheap solidarity around that anxiety. And when you get high anxiety, you get low resilience. Um, that means that somebody might say, oh yes, I'll do this, actually, give me it. I'm gonna get too political here. What amazing resilience Mrs. May seems to have. Um, but, you know, politicians in general, um, hugely anxious time. And that's when stuff happens. Um, people just fall off in all kinds of bizarre ways. And of course, we're seeing that now. And then this interesting one. People forget how to have fun together. And let's just look at last night. <laughs> that was about people taking risks. That was about people saying, do you know what? This might be a bit of a belly flop or worse, but you know what, it's all right. There's nothing to be fearful of. People are gonna come towards me and support me, and it's all right. That is an amazing gift. And you can see how that having fun together becomes a little signifier of your robustness. And wouldn't you want it for the whole of Whitstable? Wouldn't you want it for the whole of Whitstable? And maybe, I often work with groups and um, what are our best hopes for people who are, struggle, who are in struggle? And it's really hard because you don't want to say, oh, we want them to have more money, we want them to have a nicer house without any damp. Of course, but what do we really want? And it may just be that it's to be part of a group a bit like this, where you can risk making a fool of yourself or it not quite coming off as it was meant to. And it's all right. So you start to see how fun becomes just a subversive offer in the context of anxiety. Next one, please. So if we're going to do mission in a a location which has become more anxious, whether it's Whitstable or the nation, then what do we have to do? Well, first of all, we have to be able to manage our own reactive tendencies. And because I trust you, I'll tell you mine. One of mine is a posh accent. If anybody comes near me with a posh accent, I'm already ready to give them a Kirby kiss. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> and it just... 
And it's stupid, as old as I am, um, that posh accent, and it does it to me. Now, each of us will have our own reactive tendencies, and they'll be deeply humiliating. Um, I'm not going to have you discuss your reactive buttons, but do make sure you know him. Quite wise to do it because the heightened anxiety that you will have in an interregnum and welcoming a new person, all that uncertainty, um, it will be reactive tendencies which will come to the fore. And they'll all be very odd, as I say, and rather humiliating. So name your reactive tendencies, know what they are, smile at yourself when you see yourself doing it, and then just put them away. To be aware of over-functioning. Um, when we're anxious, one of the ways in which we can respond is to try and do everything, to cover every base. Um, and that's not to say don't do that, but what it will mean is that people will let you do it, and it gets even more anxiety-making. Um, so over-functioning is one of the clues for ourselves that we might be kind of, oh, I'm a bit anxious here. Ooh, what's that about? Um, I love this. Committed to a systems approach rather than monocausal suppositions and blaming. In other words, nothing has just one reason, one cause. Everything is all tied up together. They say if you ask the question why five times, you'll implicate yourself. Why has this happened? You know, why are there, I don't know, we'll do, we could do the climate change one. The why, why, why? Oh, it's me and my urge to shop until I drop. Um, so it, in other words, it's saying, just don't say it's Tessie's fault. Because the whole system will be playing a part. Um, and the systems, you can't always kind of put your finger on what it is, but it is a point, it's when you kind of lament Lament is about saying, gosh, this system pains. And all you can do is to pray and hope that the system will move into a more gracious space. And then, of course, the use of play, fun, and festivity. Um, and the key roles of animateurs. Plenty of animateurs in your network. People who'll you know an animateur? You can tell one, they say, oh, let's, let's do this, let's do that. Um, so precious in a time when things are sticking because of anxiety. Um, and it may be that part of your calling, as a great body of people in Whitstable, is the contribution of fun and festivity. That's why I suggested the barbecue in the winter, in the snow. Um, because it's fun and festivity, and it just melts that anxiety. It shifts us out of our reptile brain. Next one, please. The other thing that we can do is to be a non-anxious presence in stressful times. 
In other words, to be able to lower the voltage that's running through the system. And I want to suggest a Buddhist practice to you. Buddhists, before they meditate, they soften their eyes. They soften their eyes. Now, I'm softening my eyes, and I can't, I can't declaim, I can't give it to your large. With soft eyes, you talk calm. Are you practicing softening your eyes? Because you can't be in your reptile brain and have soft eyes. When you're in your reptile brain, you have hard eyes. That's why we say, stop eyeballing me. Get out of me face. All that sort of comment, because the eyes give the clue about whether you're in your reptile brain or not. So when you soften your eyes, you park that anxiety. You put it away. Now, one of the surefire ways of softening the eyes, and in fact, we had the illustration, because I could see all you people with soft eyes when you were looking at this little fella, and I thought it was for me. How sad is that? Um, but you don't have to do too many theological leaps to realize that when we look at the face of a baby, virtually invariably, our eyes soften. That's how we go cuckoo-cuckoo, all those silly noises that we make for babies. Our eyes soften. And of course, at the very beginning of the glorious gospel story, what do we have? A baby. God made manifest in what softens our eyes. It is, for me, one of the most extraordinary um, gifts of health and well-being that opens the very beginning of our gospel story. So if we want to soften our eyes, it's a face of a baby. And I often say um, to older people, because that's one of my particular interests, um, it is that have a picture of a baby that you just your eyes just happen to pass. Not necessarily your own children, grandchildren, just the face of a baby. And each time your eyes glance past, they will soften. Don't you think that's remarkable? That face of a baby. Let's get adult again. Um, one of the problems that we get when we are anxious is this business about scapegoating. Um, increased levels of anxiety exposes and makes vulnerable what is not alike? <laughs> Sorry, Wayne. I suppose it had to be someone, didn't it? Down with Wayne. But this picking on, this picking on, I want to, let's just pause because this is, deadly serious. This is deadly serious. That when we are anxious, we are likely to pick on. Um, and I want to finish my contribution um, with you this morning, in the next 10 minutes, 
um, is to just look at how the gospel really addresses this. It really is extraordinary. Next slide, please. So, we are in troubling times. I think that's what you said. I didn't quite hear it, but I think that's, it's complicated, it's tricky. When anxiety turns to fear, then scapegoating, the blaming, the pointing the finger, it's their fault. It can turn, it can move beyond resentment to become vengeful. For those of us who are used to the security, the temptation becomes that of anticipatory obedience. Actually, I thought I'd remove that because it's just a distraction. But gosh, it's really interesting. Do you want to know why? Um, some of us might go back long enough to know there were people who denied the Holocaust and that they were academics. And you'd say, well, how could they deny the Holocaust? Because it was clear. How could you do denial? Well, they could do denial because there were very few documents in a culture where everything was written down that there was never anything which says, right, now you're going to set up extermination camps. The kind of evidence that they would have expected to see wasn't there. And of course, what they had identified is a dynamic that is within us all, and it's called anticipatory obedience. Because what happens when we are troubled is that we psychologically or explicitly look for the people who we feel will protect us. And we want to be thought well of by those people. We want to tuck ourselves up under their wing. Now, we don't get looked on favorably just by doing our job description. Any fool can do that. We get looked on favorably by anticipating what it is that we want our powerful friends, what it is we think they want to see happen. This dynamic of anticipatory obedience. Anticipating in one's actions what one anticipates the powerful wish to see happen. Sorry, I wasn't going to do that because it's ex-certificate stuff and it's a bit of a distraction. But gosh, I've said it, so let's note it. Antici and we're all prone to it when we're troubled and anxious. We won't stand up. We might actually collaborate. So in troubled times, we have to actively counter our urge to scapegoat because of the way Jesus performed. And that's what I really want to do before we finish this session. Next slide, please. I bring you a Frenchman, René Girard. Now, this is a Frenchman who doesn't have any faith whatsoever. He earns his income from the Sorbonne being a student of literature. Um, and anthropology. He studies early literature to see what kind of early cultures are about. And of course, in doing that, he has to confront 
the Old Testament. And he's intrigued by the Old Testament because here is the only literature that he's aware of, of that era, of that age, where the business of scapegoating is addressed head on. And we will be familiar with the Jewish custom of the atonement, the taking of, um, I think it was a goat, that would be sacrificed. It would be the scapegoat. It would carry all the sins on its back. So here was a culture which actually says, do you know what? There's something nasty in the woodshed about being human. Something nasty, don't like it. Put it on that goat. Kick it over the cliff. No other literature of that date had ever actually acknowledged that there was something nasty in the woodshed and we needed, in order to be healthy, to be rid of it. And then, of course, René Girard gets to the New Testament. Can I have the next slide, please? And here, he is absolutely overwhelmed by this literature the literature, the stories that is told about Jesus and by Jesus in the New Testament. He says, gosh, this, this fellow Jesus doesn't just understand the dynamic of scapegoating. It's taken the rest of us another 2,000 years to understand it. But he actually says, do you know what? Blaming will get you nowhere. And that I want my followers not to be involved in scapegoating or blaming at all. Because let me be the last scapegoat. Let me be the last scapegoat. Don't be pointing the finger and making other people carry responsibility for all that's wrong with the world. I'll do that. So the New Testament um, is on the side of the loser. This is the first literature that's ever been written from the perspective of the scapegoat. You got me? Nothing else at this period had ever been written so as the loser is the focus of the story. So the Gospels encourage people to see the world through the eyes of the scapegoat. And then he says, but this is amazing. He says, because here, the scapegoat speaks. That's Jesus. And he says, do you know what? Death is not the final word. You cannot just kill a scapegoat, because a scapegoat will always come back. Will always return. And I will return to say to you, don't blame, don't scapegoat. Because, well, we all need a savior. We're all in this mess together and we all contribute to this mess in our own perceptible and imperceptible ways. And then he goes further and he says, blinking neck. No, I don't think he said blinking neck. <laughs> um, but he says, do you know what? This scapegoat chap Jesus, he actually says to his followers, do you know what, I want you to act this out, to remember 
that I am the scapegoat. I am the one who is taking the blame. I am the one who is carrying the responsibility. And I want you to remember that in all your symbolic acts, so what we are about to embark on in our communion together is to act out the journey of the scapegoat, the taking and the putting to death, and the rising again of the man. And you can, you can decide for yourself the nature of the man. Um, I say that because the world will struggle if we say son of God. But gosh, this is a man who 2,000 years ago was so ahead of the pack that he understood how we could bring health into the very business of being human beings together. I gave you Gerard because after this, this hard-nosed French academic smoking his gawas became a Christian. Next one, please. So, my conclusions that I leave with you this morning. Um, that Jesus... I can't read, you say, I haven't got your put there, yeah. Jesus, go on, you say it. Jesus also saves us by showing us how to live. And it's as if we're kind of, we're new to that. We're fresh to that. Um, and just as we're in troubled times, it feels as if the Gospels give us yet another um, resource and nourishment. So our evangelistic message is not just for the sake of our churches or my pension. Um, but for the, the gospel is also for the sake of the very survival of the species. Yeah, Our evangelistic efforts are not just for the flourishing of the church, but because Jesus shows us how to live, it is also for the actual survival of the species and the creation. It couldn't be more important in troubled times. I think that's it. Who's trying to get in there?